Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this moment of COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming and Zooming with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts on the south side of Boston. Now, amazingly, well into our fifth month of sheltering in place during COVID time. Our show today is entitled Imagining Apocalypse Now, Dystopian and End Times Narratives Today. Obviously, anyone who's been paying attention to the world news and local news and has not been living under a rock has been uh, drawn to many crises that have been afflicting our society and our world over this last five month period. And perhaps for those paying attention, even before that, uh, we have been living in a moment where now, uh, according to the latest estimates, we have over 15 million people on Earth that are, have tested positive to the, for the novel coronavirus. Uh, over 630,000 who have been reported dead. That number is likely much higher, as there are many that go uncounted. We now are back up in the United States of America to 1,000 dying per day in the last few days. We have what uh, some people are calling a wannabe fascist in the White House. Uh, massive protests, unprecedented even. Protests sometimes spell, uh, you know, spilling into rebellion and riot across the United States. Uh, an, an endemic pandemic of police violence, which is receiving more attention perhaps than it has in a long time. Federal agents without name tags deployed to Portland, Oregon, that reportedly putting activists and, and anti-racist protesters in the back of unmarked vans, all overlaying an endemic crises such as the climate crisis, the spiraling runaway global warming. And in short, it's not hard to see a connection between the real daily news with which we are coping and through which we are surviving and the theme of dystopia, the theme of apocalypse, the theme of the end of civilization as we know it. We are so blessed today to be joined by three active, radically insightful scholars who work in the field of dystopian literature and film, apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic narrative in various genres. And one of those, uh, those experts is actually our co-host and co-producer, Linda Liu, who will be co-hosting this episode. And I'm gonna pitch it over to Linda right now to introduce our two special guests and to share some of her own thoughts about the topic today. Linda, over to you. 
All right, thank you, Joe, for that intro. And uh, I want to welcome our guests, participants, and viewers. And, um, and so I just wanted to say, start by saying that uh, reality really scares me these days a lot, <laughs> especially today. And it's pretty apparent that I'm not alone. And um, I sometimes like to think that there's a sense of apocalypse in the air, so to speak, um, and in public discourse, as well as in conversations uh, between my friends and my family. And I don't mean to be alarmist or dwell in the negative, so, I want to stress the other lesser known meaning of apocalypse. That is as a kind of unveiling or revelation of things that are hidden in plain sight. COVID-19 with its threat of imminent global doom is revealing capitalist societies to be the dystopias that they really are. Lately, I'm seeing more and more people in my life as well as in the public sphere, talk about all the things that are wrong with global capitalism and what needs to change in order to effectively combat this virus and save lives. Even people I know who never before criticized our social institutions, much less have anything bad to say about capitalism, are doing just that, even if the word capitalism isn't named as such. And I want to harbor some hope in that. I want to believe that an increasing number of people are awakening to the need for universal structural change and for much better models for how to live our lives together on this earth. All that said, I've also been consuming quite a bit of apocalyptic and dystopian media these days. And of course, I'm also not alone in this. Since the pandemic began, there's been a reported uptick in the popularity of dystopian and apocalyptic films, TV and literature, and even games, and a host of speculation on why. Uh, one BBC headline, for instance, reads, why do we find comfort in terrifying stories? And in it, it proffers explanations like consuming dystopian narratives helps to reassure us since the situations depicted are so much worse than our own. And also that they serve as warnings of what may come if we maintain the status quo. Some of the article's interviewees said they appreciated being able to safely immerse themselves in worst case scenarios and imagine the challenges their protagonists face. Engaging Dystopian narratives has also inspired some viewers and readers to take action and participate in social justice work, but they can also result in passive reception without any change in consciousness. So I'm hoping in this episode to delve deeper into the imaginative dystopian and apocalyptic narratives we've been watching and reading and to explore their resonance for the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So here I'm delighted 
to welcome Jerry Canavan and Mark Soderstrom to our show. Jerry Canavan is an associate professor in the English department at Marquette University, specializing in 20th and 21st century literature. His first book, Octavia E. Butler, appeared in 2016 in the Modern Masters of Science Fiction series at U University of Illinois Press. He tweets at, at Jerry Canavan and has recently embarked on an ill-considered Kurt Vonnegut reread podcast at Grad School Vaughn. Mark Soderstrom has been a professional blacksmith, carpenter, labor organizer, and musician. He is now an associate professor in the Master of Arts in Liberal Studies and work in labor history programs of SUNY Empire State College. He has published work on labor history, history of science, oral history, neoliberalism, and speculative fiction. All right. So um, I guess I'll just pitch it to either of you. Uh, what are some of your thoughts on the terms and subjects of today's show? Oh, well, I, I will sort of hop in. Um, I'd first like to thank uh, Joe and Linda for inviting me to be part of this panel. I'm really honored. I anticipate learning a lot. Uh, I have a few comments that I'd sort of like to begin to frame my part of the conversation. I have uh, jokingly referred to my role in this evening's discussion as reclaiming the apocalypse from Mel Gibson. Um, Gibson's Mad Max movie series sort of fantasizes that society has stolen power and masculinity away from white men. Therefore, individual white men must win it back through violence. And I think we continue to see this attitude prominently, right, in, in the armed men storming the Michigan State House, demanding not to be forced to be feminized by wearing masks. Um, you know, this is a typical in, in some of the dystopian narratives. Mockingjay from the Hunger Games series goes further in my estimation. By the end, it's suspecting that all organized collectivity, even in revolution, inevitably leads to tyranny and depression. The only option for our heroine is to retreat into private family life. And I find myself pretty suspicious of all dystopias uh, that mark their dystopia by the status of the nuclear family, right? To me, that, that's a sign that we're looking at a potentially conservative text. Uh, one of the films we're gonna talk about this evening, Contagion, in some respects, gives us a more optimistic look at the potential of apocalypse by contrasting the violence of looters with the collective altruism of researchers. Um, I would actually say that that's, that film misspoke in that regard, and the reverse is sort of, in, in some respects, true, right? The actuality of our current pandemic is showing us the poverty of many of our government officials in sort of cravenly lying to us um, to, for political gain, and showing the sort of spontaneous generousness of our neighbors, many of whom have formed collectivities for grocery shopping for the elderly, or cleaning up after the riots in Minneapolis, organizing neighborhood relief all on their own. Um, so that, or the Portland moms, right, who have gone out to place their bodies between federal agents and protesters. Um, that, that these crises, that contagion gives us a, a sort of false look at how people respond in crises. Uh, I think looking at dystopia through the lens of, is it individual or collective is one access. 
axis to consider, but uh, dystopias are global, right? And indigenous people throughout the world have been living in dystopia for centuries from colonization and displacement. And some people's dystopias are other people's paradise, right? And I think we need to recognize that we're not unified in dystopia. Uh, the 119 billionaires of New York City have increased their wealth from just March to this June from 521 billion to over 600 billion in a space of three months during the pandemic. Um, these days, I find myself drawn to uh, reading some feminist authors of dystopia and apocalypse like Genevieve Valentine uh, that use the genre to lay bare the politics of our current situation. Um, while I'm reclaiming the genre, I think from Mel Gibson, I'm not throwing the genre out. I think there are you know, people like Genevieve Valentine. I'm also finding myself drawn to post-colonial dystopic and apocalyptic literature by African-Americans, Africans, uh, Native Americans, and Asian authors. Um, Rebecca Roanhorse, Aliette de Bodard, Tade Thompson, N.K. Jemison all of whom I think use dystopias and the apocalypse to challenge structures of colonialism and racial domination in interesting ways. I think the, their perspectives are something that it would be valuable to bring into this conversation. Um, I hope we can talk about some of these texts and some of the texts that other folks are interested in. And I really do look forward to the conversation and I look forward to hearing from Jerry. It's great to have you, Mark. I'll just say briefly, I mean, one thing, I've known Mark for years, and one thing, I've never heard Mark give a paper at a conference where I didn't learn about at least one book that I wanted to actually go and read. You know, he has that ability to map out a lot of terrain, and, and, but also to tell you enough that you can actually follow and, and yet entice you to do more. So hopefully everyone who's watching and listening will gain at least a book or something that they haven't encountered before they want to pick up. And also, before we go to Jerry, I want to remind everyone, we will, as we always do on the show, be opening up the last part of the show for your own questions and comments, including your suggestions and your experiences from reading or watching dystopian or apocalyptic narrative, whether it's in writing or film or video, uh, that you want to plug, maybe something that doesn't come up in the show that you'd like to offer to our guests and to other people listening and watching your own thoughts on maybe a lesser known title that has slipped through our, uh, our net today. So uh, over to Jerry. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a professor of literature. I think a lot about books and film and culture. And one of the things that really I imprinted on when I was a student was Frederick Jameson's ideas about utopia. And so um, I thought I would talk a little bit about those uh, for a minute. Um, Jameson has an essay on utopia and mass culture, uh, where he talks about utopia as being the kind of core theme, the core problematic of the highest of high culture, the lowest of low culture kind of our disgust with the social organization that actually exists and our longing for something better. And, and that's how, how I've read Apocalypse. Um, as Linda said, it's, it's an unveiling of the violence of our system that we're typically unable to see. Uh, with COVID, you see that in you know, who can shelter in place and who has to work, who is one lost paycheck away from total financial catastrophe, uh, the way the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade manifests today and who's at risk for more severe complications. Um, and it's also a way of imagining the end of capitalism by way of imagining the end of the world, like Jameson puts it, a fantasy about the emergence of something that was so powerful and so violent it could actually overthrow capitalism. And if you think back to March, you know, we were 
seeing a lot of fantasies about how universal basic income was coming, capitalism would have to change in the face of what uh, COVID was doing to the planet. Although, of course, um, it apparently didn't. Um, in a more abstract way, I think the Black Lives Matter protests um, and the uh, and the kind of insurrectionary uh, movement uh, has kind of coincided with the coronavirus crisis, not by coincidence, right? It's, it has seemed to open up new possibilities and, and a kind of new willingness to imagine uh, different futures for capital. Utopia is always kind of uh, paired with dystopia as its opposite. Utopia is the good place, dystopia is the bad place. Um, but Jameson and some of the other Marxist thinkers that I lean on draw a distinction between dystopia and anti-utopia that I think is pretty important. Uh, dystopia is the bad place, but typically a dystopian story is still pretty utopian in character, right? It's a story of a revolution against a bad government. It's a story about trying to flee to a space of safety against the bad government, or even in the most kind of bare way, it's a warning about a future we could still prevent if we are able to kind of intervene in the present to prevent a bad future from happening. The anti-utopia is the kind of true enemy. Um, that's the story that says there is no better future. There's nothing humans can do to make anything better than, there, than it is right now. Um, every utopia is kind of secretly a nightmare state filled with genocide. Um, no society could be ba with, based without oppression, without exploitation, without violence. Um, so as, as Jameson puts it at the start of uh, Archaeology of the Future, it's the anti-utopians who are the enemy, not the dystopians. The dystopians are just pessimists, that's fine. Uh, lots of us are pessimists. Um, the anti-utopians are the ones who say that there is no hope whatsoever. Uh, and so he says, if we are to be anything, we have to be anti-anti-utopia, right? Like we have to re refuse that spirit of determination. Uh, and that's true of our fictions as well as our kind of larger historical moment. We are confronted today by this massive overawing anti-utopian system of thought. Uh, Mark Fisher called it capitalist realism, uh, essentially the claim that there is no alternative uh, to capital, um, even as it becomes apparent to everybody that capitalism is destroying the planet and making it unlivable, uh, still we insist that there's no possible alternative to it. Um, I sometimes think of this as a kind of necrofuturism, right? That the only future is a future of mass death and suffering. And it's just a question of which side of the line of pain you're on. Um, it has in part a lot to do with the, the fact of, uh, that I study the ecological a lot. Um, so we kind of landed on two texts we were going to talk about, Snowpiercer and Contagion. They both use these kinds of formulations pretty well. Snowpiercer is a great world reduction story. The whole capitalist system becomes a, tr a single train that we all live on, uh, and the rich people in the front and the poor people are in the back. Um, it's a story about a failed revolution, but it's not really an anti-utopian story. Instead, it ends with this kind of dreamlike prefiguration of a world after capital and after whiteness. Um, the film makes pretty clear that there is no hope aboard the train, no matter who wins the fight. Uh, the train is doomed, and so we have to go to something else. Um, and what we emerge into is a world that's alive. It's not necessarily the world we want, but it's a world that's alive and a world we can live in. Contagion as a kind of cognitive mapping of contemporary capitalism, uh, superficially much more conservative and reactionary. I think Mark kind of alluded to some of those features. But the ending does kind of complicate this significantly for me. Um, there's a line in there that, you know, we don't need to weaponize the bird flu. The birds are doing that. Nature is already creating uh, these sorts of structures uh, to destroy us. But the ending makes it clear that all this is happening because of capitalism, right? Because we are capriciously build, uh, bulldozing natural habitats, because we have unsanitary and cruel industrial agricultural practices, uh, because we have people flying around the globe in airplanes, right? Spreading the pandemic around. Um, many people misread the ending of Contagion as a kind of moralistic comment on Paltrow's character's kind of adultery. 
But the adultery is kind of a red herring. The actual progression of disease, the reason MEV becomes a global pandemic is because of global capital. And that's why I like, weirdly, that everyone is watching Contagion, as grim as it is. It kind of shows us that COVID and climate change are not at odds with each other in some kind of like apocalypse Olympics or something, but they're twinned outgrowths of the same nightmare, which is capital. And by opposing capitalism, we fix both. So that's, that's what I see good about Contagion, although I'm open to the, the problems that I'm sure we'll talk about with it. That's great, Jerry. And actually, uh, Linda has a couple of clips, uh, the, just the trailers actually, for these films, just to make sure that everyone's at least in on the conversation that much, even if they have not watched the whole film. So Linda, do you want to show, we're going to do maybe the Contagion clip, we'll do that, and then maybe we can dig in a little more, and then we'll, we'll wait a little bit, we'll come back to Snowpiercer, a very different kind of film, but certainly some similar issues treated. Uh, you want to, do we have it, we have it queued up? All right, this is our first adventure into showing a clip during the show. Uh, we are, our technical capacities uh, expand every week, slowly but surely. Should be coming up any second. Are we good over there, Linda? Hold on, just a second. Okay, there we go. So we're not actually getting sound on that, Linda. So you want to try that again? Jerry, while uh, Linda's working that out, let's. Uh, I want to ask you to say a little more about a term you use. I know Linda was interested in this term as well. Your notion of uh, necrofuturism. Could you uh, unpack that a little bit for us while we get the technical side uh, worked out here? Mm -hmm. It was working fine before the show, but of course, live, live Zoom is like that, I guess. Um, <laughs> so Jerry, could you say a little more about that term and then we'll come back and see if we can get a clip going in, uh, in a minute? So it, it's part of a kind of larger kind of theoretical movement of adding necro to cap terms like political, like capital. Um, and to me, it's, it's about thinking about the way all of our futures that we imagine today are kind of zombie futures, right? We just don't imagine the kind of techno-utopian uh, future that we once did easily in the 50s and 60s in kind of golden age science fiction, um, we understand on some level that most of the future uh, possibility space left to us is futures of deprivation and misery because of climate change and all the things that go with it. Um, the only thing that seems kind of techno-utopian in character would be like the singularity, right? Where we have AI monsters that may or may not serve us depending on how well we program them. Um, so thinking about the necro future and thinking about this, um, there's a way in which it can be very reactionary, right? Because it causes us to kind of cling to capital, to cling to the systems we have as the only thing that can protect us, even as those systems kind of continuously fail and start to break down. And Snowpiercer is really good on this subject, right? That the train is like breaking itself apart throughout the entire film. We have people who are making these like heroic death-defying leaps to try to keep the thing moving, right? We have to start putting children in the mechanism to keep it going. Um, but we think that that's the only thing we could have, the only space to live. And the utopian glimmer, the utopian 
intervention is to say that there are other ways, right? If we change who we are, if we change our assumptions about what the world has to be, there may be other ways to live, right? Um, and so resisting necrofuturism is the way of resisting capitalist realism. Very interesting, yeah. Uh, I'm gonna, we're gonna go back to Linda and see if we can get uh, one of these clips going so we can get in a little more. I mean, I think we could go with Snowpiercer or we could go with, uh, we could go with Contagion. Uh, Linda, do you have one ready to go? We'll give it one more try. And thank you all for bearing with us as we, uh, as we introduce this little bit of uh, new technology into our live show here. Honestly, I kind of like watching it with no sound. I do that with my students sometimes. Uh, you see a thing differently when you can't hear what they're trying to, to get you to hear. Images are great. I'm tempted to do my, uh, you know, my impression of the actors here. It's <laughs> <laughs> just going to turn into mystery science theater, you know, if we don't. We'll watch it. I mean, we can watch it through. Let's watch it through. Okay, I'm so confused. Why is this not? Uh, well, this is, I guess this is how we learn. Do you want to just let it run through so we can see the images? I mean, we're already okay. halfway through. Those scenes of people touching each other, even, th you know, three, five months into this, however long it's been, are so horrifying uh, <laughs> now, right? Just the, the mental gymnastics one does to see where the germs are going right uh, yeah the film is so effective uh yeah in that and probably much more so than it was in 2011. yeah they really do find that they really do linger with the touch something they do <laughs> with the camera the acting there's just like that extra millisecond right of contact the way the camera kind of almost sticky itself like lingers on the bus holders you know the bus the bus rails and and it's a uh, it definitely impresses you in, in that way the touch the touchy touchness of the world the nuts in the bar was one that I realized was really, because it's so ordinary, but it's so. Three months, it's, it's a billion. That's where we're headed. They're calling out the National Guard. They're moving the president underground. People will panic. Get away! It will tip over. The truth is being kept from the world. Cook your samples, destroy everything. Hello. I need you to get me the names of everyone who serviced this room. It's an emergency. You can't panic now. I know. I'm gonna get you all. I got people too, Dr. Cheever. We all do. Don't talk to anyone. Don't touch anyone. Stay away from other people. We're taking your time. We're not sick! It's figuring us out faster than we're figuring it out. It's mutating. There you go. So we got we got the sound going there. I don't know. Linda figured it out, or if this the, the technology gods just decided to judge us kindly. Uh, so I mean, I'll pitch it back to Linda. Linda, would you like to say something about that uh, clip or or pitch a question? I know uh, it looks like uh, Mark has a question for Jerry. If we don't, so uh, but you go first. Yeah, uh, Mark. Why why don't you go ahead? Um, 
I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of work on, on the necrofuturity, Jerry, and it, it makes me think, particularly when we're looking at that those clips from Contagion, that Contagion is really built around the, the natural family drama, right? The uh, two families, right? Um, but particularly the Minnesota family. Um, and uh, it, it does make me wonder if one of the responses to challenge heterofuturity, right, and come the queer the queer response of like Edelman with no future, or um, Halberstam in Queer Art of Failure, to go part of the problem is the is the naturalized way that we have a cap a capital reproducing dyadic nuclear family as the sort of only option. Um, that, you know, we not only base all of our society around, but we base all our narratives around. And it's hard to imagine outside of that. Is, is there a way, that, a way that you would link the sort of queer critique and necrofuturity critique? No, I, I think that's a, a tremendously interesting problem that so many of these stories are about. Um, I think as you suggest in your remarks, a, a white man who um, is suffering under capitalism, but their greatness becomes recognized after the apocalypse, right? They go from being a janitor to the warlord of Nebraska or something, right? Um, Rick Grimes, Walking Dead is, is a kind of archetypal example, right? That he becomes this heroic, larger than life, world historical figure um, because the apocalypse gives him a chance for his natural greatness to arise. Um, on the flip side of that, you often see these stories kind of reasserting uh, white supremacy on the other side, if only in critique, like on um, the way Night of the Living Dead has to end with the black hero being executed, right, by a white lynch mob, right? You return and reassert uh, white supremacy. Um, W.B. Du Bois was doing that back with the comet in uh, like 1920, right? It might have even been earlier, right? Um, what seems to be the apocalypse is only temporary, and so the white people come in and lynch uh, the black main character at the end, right, to restore a sense of... Um, the old ways. Uh, so a lot of the stories that I find most interesting are precisely, as you say, about refusing to, you know, allow that sort of um, reactionary story to be told. Um, Snowpiercer does that in its own way, right? The white hero has to die so that the non-white heroes can live. Um, Contagion, it, it, it plays with both versions. It wants to have all every kind of possibility there, right? Um, and so we could probably go through with each of the many characters and try to figure out whether it's endorsing um, heterofuturity or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to jump in there and ask you both a question, and we could take it in terms of uh, contagion, but also, as I mean, I think Snowpiercer applies too. I mean, Mark, you already kind of touched on this with the, the issue of how like individualism is treated or individual heroism versus kind of more collective, and then the different kind of notions of collectivity in, say, contagion, you know, the kind of government scientific bureaucrat collectivity versus the kind of everyday people's collectivity. Um, and I wonder if you could t say a little more about that. I mean, one thing that struck me about Contagion um, was how the everyday folks outside of the like Matt Damon and Gwyneth Paltrow couple, right? And they're, you know, it's really Matt Damon for most of the movie, right? And his, and his child, right? His, his kind of teenage uh, daughter, right? Um, you know, he's humanized, right? That you, they, they, they're loving and caring, but essentially I think every other like everyday person we see, it's just like one, you know, food ration away from a riot. You know, just like, it's, it's just like, it's like, I call it like Insta-riot. It's just like one of those, like a, like a heat, heating or a cooling pack, you slap it and there's a riot. It's almost like comical in a way. Um, 
you know, so the other people are threatening, right? Other people are really threatening and there doesn't seem to be much sense that other people are capable of the kind of mutual aid and solidarity that you discussed. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about, you know, do you, do you see other films out there uh, where, where we get a more robust sense of uh, collective agency, uh, a collective hero? I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I mean, we can come back to, to Snowpiercer and, and how so Snowpiercer kind of subverts the individual white male savior narrative on a, on a variety of levels, not only killing the character, but even before that, right, kind of revealing that other characters may be, in fact, really the bearers of hope right, in terms of a real radical change more than the, the kind of Chris, Chris Evans, Curtis character, right? Uh, but Mark, I mean, especially because you really mine uh, narratives that we may not be aware of, could you say a little more about like where we see more kind of collective notions of, of agency or heroism within the genre? That's a really, uh, a really important question, I think. And um, that, that sort of individual hero being, the world is wiped clean so the individual hero can let their natural, usually white, usually male excellence shine through. I mean, that's, you know, Gibson, The Road, Boy and His Dog, I mean, you know, heavily. Um, when it comes to film, I might be at a loss for thinking about a collective heroic response, right? I and mean, Larry May, the film historian I used to work with, had a, had a way that he discussed Hollywood manages to craft their narratives to get both ways, right? So those 1930s John Doe movies appealed both to Republican small government people and Democrat common man people, right? Um, but when I think about literature and I think about the genre, I think a lot of the genre writing at the moment is doing really interesting work. Um, people like I mentioned Rebecca Roanhorse and Tade Thompson's, the, the heroes are really, really embedded in community. And when they try to act alone, they fail. You know, the, the successful heroic action is only achieved collectively. Um, and I think we do a disservice. There's a really important subsection of dystopia utopian literature in the feminist utopias, right, which have a long history uh, going all the way back to the 19 teens, but very powerfully in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, uh, the classics like He, She, It and Women on the Edge of Time by March Piercy or uh, Female Man by Joanna Russ are really must reads and they have a very different setting from the white man who heroically comes to their own in the apocalypse. Rather, it's struggling with dystopia to try to build a better world for society, for a better society, not just a better personal life becoming a hero, right? Uh, Women on the Edge of Time clunky in places you know it's written in 69 70 so it's going to have some clunks but but um a brilliant sort of political political narrative and um similarly uh sometimes in the feminist where they're really just painting the despair of what is right but those, the feminist dystopia apocalypses where people come together to build a better society, um, don't make it to screen because I don't know how much they, you know, what their, what their saleable audience would be. And maybe, maybe I am missing things on screen 
and and maybe there are just things I'm not thinking of on the on the small screen or silver screen at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, maybe we could redirect that to Jerry um, because I mean, it seems like even with Snowpiercer, right? Although it does seem to subvert that kind of white savior narrative that we're expecting with Captain America, right, as like the leader of the rebel the rebel army. But in a way, it almost like in order to subvert it, it has to kind of embrace it or at least seem to embrace it like the rebellion in the back of the car right for those who haven't seen the, the movie actually maybe we can show that that mm -hmm. clip in, in a minute right but but right it's like it starts out as like a very collective rebellion curtis may be a leader but he's certainly not the the martyr he's not the lead the be all end all but then the middle and late part of the film it really does the, the, it turns into more like almost like a uh, like a crusade or I mean, not, I don't know, like a, like a quest narrative, right? With like a smaller group, right? And it gets almost down to just Curtis, you know, the kind of individual leader. And then of course it subverts it in the end in a very interesting way. I don't know if you have thoughts on films that you think embody a collective agent uh, or, or point to it, or maybe it's more negative. Maybe it's through its absence that, that we see it imply the need for it. Or do you have thoughts on that? Like where is the collective, the status of the collective hero or the collective agent within <laughs> within the films. Yeah, I, th I think Mark is right that there's a lot working against that in film, uh, the star system in Hollywood, um, you know, its own kind of conservative politics. The, the source material almost always is kind of predicated on a kind of individualist um, Superman, right, who finds the button uh, and pushes it. Um, somebody just suggested Bad Max Fury Road, which is a really good um, example that cuts against that uh, to a large extent, right? The way Mad Max recedes in his own film in that one, right? So that Furiosa can step up. But by and large, I think it's easier to see in things like uh, prose fiction um, and, 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 and things of that sort. Uh, the, the examples that I thought of while uh, Mark and Joseph were talking, um, the Kim Stanley Robinson novel, New York 2140, which takes place in a flooded out New York um, 120 years from now, all the rich people have moved to Denver because it's safe and New York has become this kind of commons of the undocumented uh, and the lost. And it's an anti-gentrification novel as much as anything else. The rich people see what they've made of New York and now want it back. And uh, our heroes are a group of people in uh, a single apartment building who are all squatters who develop a financial instrument that basically is so toxic it can crash capitalism and they use something like YouTube to tell everybody how to use it and it brings um, the banks to their knees right so like there's a kind of there's a kind of um, universalism there um, the other one that I thought of while you were talking was um, China Meevil has this great uh, pitch to Marvel about a collectivist superhero where every group of this um, uh, these laid off steel workers are controlling one part of the robot. Like, you know, it's almost like Voltron, like a part of them are the arms, a part of them are the legs, a part of them are the, are the, are the head. And at the end of the story they announce, and now it's time to go uh, defeat the man who laid us all off. Let's go kill Tony Stark. And um, it's, it's so close to what they actually did in Spider-Man Far From Home with the kind of uh, the, the, the laid off and fired workers from Stark trying to get revenge um, that I almost feel that it was kind of straight plagiarism, but it is a vision of like, what would a collectivist hero or a hero that wasn't like a singular uh, white male heroic figure look like? Um, and of course, I, he says it was a pitch. I don't know if he actually sent, the, sent it to them or not. I'm, I'm sure he knew they wouldn't want it. Um, but it's a, great, it's a great little parody of what superhero movies could be in a different kind of timeline. Very interesting to bring in superheroes too. Linda, I'm sure you have a comment question and probably a clip for us too. I don't know which, where, where you want to go next. 
Okay, yes. Um, I have kind of a common question about um, contagion. So, so Scott Burns, the screenwriter of Contagion, uh, was interviewed uh, various times and uh, he said that he never ever anticipated that our federal leaders would be so very incompetent. And so he can't write the movie today. He, he says um, he doesn't get to write what's happening now. We're all writing this together, right? And so, and so I, I'm just, uh, I, I just think that's kind of, that's kind of interesting, right? Um, that actually the experts, right, and the scientists, and and even the leaders, right, the um, the president, right, the um, and and all of the federal leaders are are pretty much competent, right? And um, and I feel like I don't know what what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, I, I did a study of of nine eleven film not long ago, and it was very similar. That all nine eleven film has an older white man standing in the crowds who, is, the second the terrorist attack happened, knows exactly what who did it, what has to happen next, uh, how to save everybody. The TVs kind of almost seem to turn on by themselves, and the news anchors also already know what's happening. And I lived through 9-11, we all did. It wasn't anything like that. It was absolute chaos with absolute nonsense being sprayed, um, not just that day with all sorts of phantom reports that never materialized, but for years later, right? Um, and watching Contagion, it is, the, the level of kind of status propaganda is kind of striking, right? That they're all the people who work for the government are noble. Um, all of them are self-sacrificing sacri self to the point of their own deaths, right? Um, they make mistakes to like save their spouse or something, but they're tortured about it, right? Um, and our current situation is so different. Like, where did I learn the most about COVID? I learned it from the Jude Law figure, right? I learned it from reading Reddit slash coronavirus, right? Um, that's when I learned that I needed to wear a mask. That's where I learned that this was going to be serious when like Andrew Cuomo and de Blasio were still telling people to go out and eat and go to Broadway, right? Um, that's where I learned that like air conditioning is bad, right? Like everything that seems to be true about coronavirus, I learned from cranks on the internet who were trying to crunch the numbers um, while the government was telling everybody not to worry and not to panic, right? Um, and the level of damage that was done simply by the like the crazy orders about masks, right? First masks were bad for you. Then they were maybe okay, didn't matter. Now they're the most important thing in the world, right? Like the state changes its mind about every aspect of this disease every couple weeks. And we're all suspected to just pretend that we don't notice that it's happening, right? Um, and so to me, the Jude Law character, right? I obviously, he's this Alex Jones figure who's like trying to profit on it. But that kind of figure has also been tremendously important in understanding coronavirus and um, against the way mainstream politicians of both parties have continuously made the situation worse over and over and over again and are still making it worse now. Right. In the film, it's almost like who's trying to profit from the the virus? Oh, it's this crank on the internet, right? Whereas now we know, I mean, it's it's incredible parts of the system, right, that are oriented even, even unconsciously just by virtue of having everything privatized, but also very deliberately right, to profit off of this and make sure that it's, you know, that the, the solutions when, when, if and when they come for this virus will, will be huge money makers, right? So, I mean, I don't know how many billions of, you know, trillions of dollars are going to be made off of a potential vaccine even, right? Even though, I mean, we're all rooting for it. Um, yeah, uh, Linda, you want to follow up? 
Yeah, and I also just wanted, um, I wanted to point out that there was a public service announcement uh, made by the main actors of Contagion. And it was made for, uh, for COVID-19. And, um, and so I thought that was really interesting because it was advising to pub the public, you know, to uh, socially distance and what that means and to wash your hands and this and that. Um, and, and also they advised uh, people to, to trust, have faith in experts and scientists. So I thought that was interesting because, um, because they are fictional characters, right? But giving a PSA. Um, should we show the clip of that? It's only one minute. I mean, I think we've learned how to make the sound work. So maybe we can do that. And then okay. maybe we can actually bring in some snow piercers yeah. okay. for, our, for our great guests on that one as well. So again, for those who missed it, this is the, uh, the cast of Contagion doing a public service announcement in our contemporary moment of COVID. All right, countdown, we got it. It's funny how like five seconds can feel like a lot longer when you are in a uh, live broadcast. Update, Linda. <clears throat> Whatever is going on, just let us know. Uh, can I ask Mark? Sure, Tim, go Mark, ahead. Mark, how many zombies does it take to change a light bulb? Oh dear, Tim, I have no, I have no idea how many zombies <laughs> does it take to change a light bulb. Well, let's let what? me. Yeah, the, go ahead. Zombie, the zombie's not going to change the light bulb. The power's been off for months. But I'm bumped. All right. On that note, <laughs> hopefully we have sound to go with this too. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Matt Damon. Um, so a few years ago, a bunch of us did this movie called Contagion, which we've noticed is creeping its way back up on the charts uh, on iTunes uh, for obvious reasons, given what we're all living through right now. Um, and so the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University reached out to the cast and asked us if we would uh, have a virtual reunion to do some PSAs for everybody that, that might be helpful. And so we readily agreed and so uh, here they are. Um, so everything you're gonna hear from us has been vetted by public health experts and, uh, and scientists. Um, so I'm here to talk to you about social distancing, something we've been hearing a lot about on TV, I think the last couple of weeks. Um, in the movie, I played a guy who was immune to the uh, hypothetical virus that was spreading around the world. And so a few things to start. Uh, one, um, that was a movie. This is real life. I have no reason to believe that I'm immune to COVID-19 uh, and neither do you, uh, no matter how young you are. This is a new virus. It's going to take some time for our bodies and our doctors to understand it and to understand the best way to protect us. So new viruses emerge all the time. Uh, this isn't the first and it won't be the last. So the good news is we have seen things like this before and we emerge stronger as a result. And in time, we're going to win against this one as well. How much time? That is an excellent question. 
Nobody knows for sure, but we do know how to make that day get here quicker. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about, social distancing. It means stay six feet away from another person. It means not gathering in groups, and it means staying home or sheltering in place if that's what government officials are telling you to do. People can have COVID-19 and have very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. Uh, so even if you think that they're healthy or you think that you're healthy, don't take that chance. It is not worth it. Every time that you pass this virus to someone else, you are actually giving it to three or four other people as well. We call a novel virus, and that means our immune systems have never seen it before. So until we have a treatment or a vaccine, every single one of us, regardless of age or ethnicity, is at risk of getting it. So if you're anything like me, your first question is, how long? To prepare for the role, I spent time with some of the best public health professionals in the world. And what was one of the most important things they taught me? Wash your hands like your life depends on it. Because right now, in particular, it just might. Or the life of someone you love, or even the life of someone... For disease control, the virus in that movie was created by a screenwriter. COVID-19 is very real. Um, most of us aren't old enough to remember the diseases smallpox and polio and the way that those diseases had affected billions of lives. But they changed the way that people lived. And it looks like COVID-19 is forcing us to change the way that we live, at least for a while. Now, there's a scene in the movie Contagion about the tradition of handshaking. Um, you extended your hand and showed the person you were meeting that you didn't have a weapon, that you weren't carrying one. Well, now the way we're living is like we're all carrying a weapon and we don't even know it. What we do know is that the virus travels through human contact. That's one of the ways it travels. It needs us to survive. So let's not give it any help. Quite simply, one of the best ways to prevent yourself from getting COVID-19 is by behaving like you already have it. Okay, so yeah, that's interesting. A little longer than we expected. It's actually a 13 minute clip, but we got a little, at least maybe a sense of it there. Um, yeah, so I mean, what do we think? Uh, Linda, did you have a comment on that or do you just want to pitch that to our guests? I mean, I have, a, I have a thought on it, but I'd like to hear what Jerry and Mark think. Well, I just, uh, I just have a, a very brief thing to say about it. It kind of reminds me of that old commercial with, with the actor who says, um, I'm a doc. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. So you should trust my advice for this uh, medication that I'm selling. So um, it just kind of, I, I just thought it kind of reminded me of, of something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, I mean, it's, I, I guess I want to ask though to, to, to Jerry and, and Mark, like it, we're living in a particular moment where we have a very divided government in some ways too, right? Where it's some, there are some parts of it that are like anti-science in a clear way. Uh, it kind of makes me think about science, uh, scientific certainty, where, or at least evidence-based science in a different way. And I mean, some of that postmodern fear of scientific you know, uh, grand narrative is not as prominent in my consciousness anyway as it was, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, yeah, I don't know, any, any thoughts on this little fiction to fact PSA that we're getting? Uh, you know, my biggest reaction is just the kind of condescension of it, right? That we need 
these people to teach us um, and educate us in these kinds of utterly condescending ways. Um, it seems to me that the kind of, you know, the, the main response of like media forces has been to like identify some stooge who was making this happen uh, for a while. It's now it's been young people, but before that it was rednecks or it was uh, the protesters, right? Um, we're just kind of cycling through the Chinese, right? Like who's to blame for this? Like whose stupid bad behavior can we, the rest of us look down on? Um, and the problem is not that individual actors are causing this problem. It's that this, our system has been unable to do the plain things that it knows it needs to do, which is pay people to stay home and uh, stay healthy until the system resumes again, right? Um, and instead, this kind of incessant drumbeat that we have to get back to normal and we have to do everything the way we used to do, and we can't spend a single dollar despite you know, this unprecedented crisis is the true cause of all of this. And the reaction of elites within the system is to find some scapegoat. Um, right now I'm on a college campus. My administration is getting ready to, to send us all back to work as most administrations are. And they're already in the press blaming the students for outbreaks on campus that haven't happened yet, right? Um, rather than the institutions that are making everybody go back to work, making the campuses open, instead it's the fault of the students who can't control themselves, right? Um, we see that with the Disney World stuff, people going to the beaches, all these other places, right? Um, the real problem are the institutions that cannot react to this, right? That Congress has barely even met to discuss this problem uh, functionally or passed any, any laws to help us. And the response of the celebrities is to blame people who won't listen to reason and won't wash their hands. Yeah, it's very, it's very notable, right, that they don't mention the end of contagion, right? As you mentioned, the thing that may save contagion from being as reactionary as it could be, right, is that, is that parting shot with the caterpillar bulldozer knocking down the trees, which then makes the bat fly, and then the bat goes into like a, you know, industrial farm, right, where it drops some food, a pig eats, and before you know it, we have a chef at the casino serving, you know, shaking hands with with uh, pig blood or whatever, pig germ on his uh, bat germ by a pig, right? Uh, so that, that whole connection, that corporate globalization, uh, capitalism kind of piece is missing from that PSA. I mean, we didn't listen to the whole thing, but I'd be shocked if it's like, oh yeah, and we need to get rid of global capitalism or making the Mike Davis point, which is if you wanna have global capitalism, you better have globalized universal healthcare or else the, the species is doomed, right? <laughs> that you can't have global capitalism without a global public health system. Uh, Mark, do you wanna to speak to this? I mean, I mean, we can certainly take, we don't need to spend much more time with the PSA, but do you have a comment on it? Oh, there are so many levels there that I'm not quite sure where to dig in. I do find it, you know, it fascinating that whoever put that PSA together thought people would trust Gwyneth Paltrow more than they would trust, you know, somebody who came up and said, I, you know, I'm, I'm a PhD, at John Hopkins. I've spent 25 years of my life studying this. Let me talk to you about it. Instead, the people who put that PSA together thought, no, people will listen to Gwyneth Paltrow instead. And I think there, there's a, a really weird social paradigm, right? And I would defend some of the modern critiques of science just on those grounds, right? Um, that, you know, Latour isn't wrong in terms of saying that some of these scientific practices of elite cloaking have not served science well, right? Um, and the way that uh, the way that scientists have reacted against critics, and uh, not even critics, just analysts like Kuhn, 
uh, to blame to blame them on on this that this is their fault. I think is is entirely missing the point. It is the system of proprietary intellectual knowledge closed off from people without any kind of democratic oversight that has created a gulf between the scientific community that we're all supposed to just inherently trust um, and that we then prefer to trust, you know, Brad, you know, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon are more reliable to us for some reason is just, is just a fascinating, a fascinating move. Um, I think that's very interesting, the connection to trust, right? I mean, it's, you, you might argue it's not a particularly scientific method to, to kind of go on faith in general, right? Even a lot of people, I mean, we, we have these polarized discussions or debates in this, in this culture now, right? Where even the, even the pro-science side sometimes, at least if you're not, I mean, I, I would say often sounds like it's faith-based as well. It's, it's making an appeal to authority not, not actually so much walking through the basics of the actual argument. Now, obviously, I'm not saying you can share detailed, uh, you know, in a short form, you know, detailed empirical evidence in every context, right? I mean, we need to make some generalizations. We do always have to have some kind of belief undergirding any factual claim anyway, right? Uh, but I do think there is, I think you signal something very real, right? Which is just this kind of this, this gap, right? This gap that now means if people don't really understand the basic science of a crisis, then they can swing with the weather, right? You know, do you believe in global warming? What was the weather this week, right? As opposed to actually underlying, you know, kind of having a firm grasp of the underlying uh, dynamics. So I, I don't know, this issue of how Hollywood films each actually teach us to trust, right? Or distrust, I think is maybe an interesting angle here. Well, and I think, soon, and I, yeah, if I can hop back, right? I think, you know, um, Nancy Fraser, as an economist, actually puts her finger on some of this by saying that um, we have so devalued all forms of social reproduction in this country. We have cut out all forms, you know, education and libraries. Uh, you know, Sesame Street is now a private channel that you know people are going to have to pay for, right? We have we have so defunded social reproduction that. Um, that element of social reproduction that is creating public trust, right? That capitalism depends on. I actually believe when I go paint your house that you're going to pay me at the end of that, right? That, that those elements, that that element of built-in trust into the system is part of the social reproduction. And when neoliberalism has so gutted the mechanisms of social reproduction, this is an unintended consequence that the, the people running the system and profiting by it didn't anticipate. Yeah, and picking Does up on sense? Tim's question about zombies earlier, I mean, I feel like isn't one of the subtexts of some of the zombie genre, I wouldn't lump it all in, obviously. I think there's a big difference between slow and fast zombies. You know, there's a lot that can be said. Um, but I mean, one of the subtexts of the zombies is like even the people that you love could turn on you in an instant. Right? Like there is no friendship or even love that is that could not be turned into savage, you know, like <laughs> cannibalistic competition and, 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 and death, you know, with, with, with you know, if, if the bug or the bite happens, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I'm not saying that's that that characterizes the genre as a whole, but I think, yeah, this the erosion of trust, right? I mean, I wonder how that plays, you know, how, how we track that through the genres that you, you all focus on. Um, well, almost all of those stories end in some way or another with the, 
the need to form a government that has the power to execute people, right? That you eventually find some human being who you can't trust and need to expel for whatever reason or execute. Um, and the kind of reestablishment of a state system. Um, I always look at it kind of allegorically, right? That the zombies have the opposite position. They don't, they're making you like them and they don't attack each other. They don't hurt each other. Um, they don't suffer. Um, they're all kind of of a piece. I mean, there's a way in which the zombies are this kind of like allegory for true community and that the humans just simply need um, to understand that the future belongs to that kind of vision rather than the individualistic one uh, and they'd be better off, right? I mean, obviously from one perspective that means dying and horribly and, and in misery, but on the allegorical level, the zombies have this, have a case. Okay, so the zombies work together better than the humans do in some and, ways. And they don't, they don't hurt each other. And they don't and hurt when, each other. And when they, when they attack you, that's just to make you like them. It's to welcome you in. Okay, okay, this is, I, this is the necro, the necro futurism perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> ne necro utopia futurism okay okay i think uh linda has a comment or a question and, and and i think we actually have we have some questions in the queue at this point as well uh linda uh yes so i saw that mj has a hand up so uh would you like to ask a question mj M mj unmute yourself and join us i'm unmuted now yeah so I, I do want to comment on a few things that, that Jerry said. Um, one, there's this, this issue about, uh, you know, those, those dumb people, you know, they're all responsible for everything. And um, I've, I've kind of, I felt for a while that, I mean, I know a lot of uh, we're liberals and, and there are a lot of liberals who, I know that they're not doing anything at all to kind of like change their own consumption of resources. And I know that's a whole other issue about you know, how much effect an individual can have on not, you know, using up the resources. But what I think is very interesting is like, or irritating is like, they're not doing anything, anything to like fly less, to drive less, anything like this. But, but they feel that they're kind of better because they're not denying, you know, global warming. So it's like, so it's like you know, the conservatives are, are, are like, they're in denial about global warming and like, they're so stupid. And it's like, that's all they need to know. But it's like, not like they have to advocate, you know, with Nancy Pelosi or Congress to do anything about global warming. The only thing is, you know, we have to, we have to, we know we're the smart ones, they're the dumb ones. They're the reasons that we're so far behind. But there's a, uh, I think, I, I imagine everybody here is familiar with uh, what, Bron Bron Bronco Milonovic, everybody known from Jacobin, Bronco Milonovic, yeah. So he had, he had a post on Twitter the other day, and he said he's, uh, he's given up, he's lost total faith in the universities for finding a cure. And he said, because they send out all their announcements and everything like this, you know, that they're working on a cure and he's lost all faith. And I, I was just like thinking like, how can, you know, this is like one of our leftist stars. I'm like, how can you be so stupid and think that all these promos from the universities are like, yeah, the cure is gonna be right around the corner. But then somebody in the comments, somebody in the comments, this was a Twitter thread, actually said, um, actually started blaming the right-wingers who are not wearing their masks, you know, for the fact that universities haven't found a cure yet. Do you understand what I'm saying? People are so encultured to keep looking and saying like, those dumb people, those dumb people, they're dumb people. And they, they haven't developed not only ability, I think, to be any kind of critical thinking about universities and propaganda, but as well, no demand 
upon politicians to do everything they can to acknowledge that we're in a crisis. Um, and, and that's just, yeah, I mean, I think that, that's a big, big problem. If everybody knows who Vivek Chibber is, you know, Vivek Chibber over, over the weekend, he was on uh, a Jacobin podcast with Michael Brooks, you know, may he rest in peace or may he rest in power, you know, Michael Brooks died a few days ago. But Chibber was talking about the total movement to um, why the left is kind of occupied by university elite people, um, you know, that just kind of look down their nose at the working class. The working class are you know, kind of the deplorables to many of us on the left, just as, you know, Hillary Clinton would say. And I think, and so Chibek was basically saying like, um, you know, some people would say, well, you're just talking about liberals. You're not talking about the left. And Chibber was actually saying, no, 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 no. It's the same class. It's the PMCs at the universities. It's like they have the same perspective, only the politics are a little bit different. But I, I just kind of wanted, uh, I guess, to end with one thing. When we, when we get offended, when we see like people kind of talking down to us, you know, Hollywood people talking down to us, I think sometimes we should put it in perspective and understand these are Hollywood people. They're not necessarily, I mean, they could very well be talking to children. You know, children look at Hollywood people. Um, I don't think we should take as much offense about it if it seems like they're being condescending because like, if everybody knows who Richard Wolf is, I can't stand Richard Wolf because it seems like he's yelling at me. He's saying, you are such an idiot and I'm gonna, but you know, I understand that for a lot of people it works. And so I try not to take it personally, you know what I'm saying? And I don't think we should take it personally when Hollywood people seem like they're a little bit condescending to us because probably talking to little kids, but that's my thing. Okay, I think there's, there's a lot in there. I mean, this <laughs> issue of elitism and talking down and, and, and how even liberals or the left that might fancy itself as different than the right in terms of its relationship to working class people or the masses actually can, can reproduce some of the same problems, even as they make gestures that make it seem different. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, I'm sure that there are ties to, to the films and, and fiction in some way. I don't know. Mark or Jerry, do you want to you jump on that? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm also trying to think about how this ties back to sort of dystopia and, and apocalypse, but that's but MJ's experience of the left is not is not always my experience of the left. You know, I, the person who introduced me to critical Marxist politics and taught me about the negation of the negation was my auto mechanic, who'd been uh, brought before HUAC in '72 and thrown out of the International Association of Machinists, and who I spent a lot of time under my 1954 Chevy truck that got me back and forth from Minnesota to Texas as a musician and in some respects he lived dystopia right i mean you know those those working class people faced a powerful state apparatus that threw them out of their jobs that isolated them from their communities um that surveilled them but i i don't i don't look at the left i don't look for the lifeblood of the left coming out of universities um and really haven't i think there's an odd there's an odd moment in the 60s where we associate, you know, Berkeley. But if you pay attention and you read Mike Davis, Berkeley is sort of epiphenomenal, right? The main student movements were in the community colleges. Um, that, that even there are the way we look back and associate an elite left is, is I think, kind of mythic and, and doesn't serve us entirely well. And, 
uh, I think look for other sources maybe. But I, I, you know, that's, that, and, and how do I pull that back to apocalypse and dystopia? I'm not entirely sure. That's your job, Joe. Yeah, right. That's, that's the, that I, I, I try to spin it, you know, uh, to synthesize. I mean, I do think there's a connection, which is maybe where do in these different narratives, and here, you know, we have, we have introduced a few of them we could come back to. I think Snowpiercer would apply the whole question of where are we taught, right? Uh, and how are we taught to, where are we taught to look for expertise, right? Where are we taught to look for leadership, right? Or how do narratives, different narratives encourage us to look it doesn't necessarily have to be the hero, but who's the source of knowledge, right? Is it the mechanic or is it the, you know, the, 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 the academic or is it the, you know, the government technocrat or the military? Oftentimes it's a military person, actually, a lot of the time, right? In some of these, you know, uh, films, right? Or, you know, maybe not the leader, right? But, you know, the, the Will Smith pilot or something, right? In some of the, you know, you know the, think about the alien kind of apocalypse films we haven't really touched on. But I wanted to ask, I think, uh, you know, Linda has a question about Snowpiercer as well, but Jerry, unless you want to speak to this directly, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about, you know, about the ending of, of Snowpiercer actually, and, and how it might relate to this question of who are we, you know, who do we see as the, the, the leaders or where, where's, where's the revolutionary leadership coming from, right? Yeah. Versus where we've been taught uh, maybe maybe we can give Jerry that, and then Linda, you can you can ask another one on on Snowpiercer. Oh yeah, I, I was going to talk about Snowpiercer too. I, I felt that entire time I was thinking about the kind of tremendous scene in the middle where they pass through the school car, and um, they see the school as this kind of site of social reproduction, right? Which um, tells a manufactured history about the origins of the train and how it works uh, to kind of indoctrinate the students through these slogans and uh, songs that they're forced to sing. And uh, she may not be a soldier, but she turns out to have some kind of military training by the end, right? Um, that kind of, you know, military industrial academic apparatus that Snowpiercer uses to um, repro socially reproduce itself is exactly the sort of problem we're talking about. Like what is you know, kind of what is speakable through the academy or through these uh, educational institutions and what isn't. Um, I'm very pro-science. I'm very uh, pro-academic uh, science in some ways. I'm looking forward to the vaccine when they make it. Um, but I think MJ's point about uh, kind of small L liberal contempt for um, the people they perceive as their enemies is an important one, right? Um, I was thinking while, uh, while this was, while we were having this conversation just about the way within a week, uh, Fauci, Cuomo, de Blasio can have contempt for the people who are afraid of the virus. Two weeks later, they have contempt for the people who aren't afraid of the virus. They talk the exact same way, even though their opinion is the one that's kind of completely changed, right? Um, our media culture has kind of habituated us to uh, pre-understand the answer to any question we encounter, right? Um, through these other kinds of structures. And it's kind of completely paralyzed us with regard to something that's so utterly novel uh, and requires thinking that is outside the ordinary, right? And outside the kind of usual terms of, of how capitalism works, uh, which is why we're five months into it. And um, in America, at least, right? Um, the people have gotten a thousand dollar check and that's it, despite historic unemployment, historic, um, eviction threat, historic like rent withholding and historic layoffs, right? Um, we're just unable to imagine or talk through anything other than the kind of constant repetition of the exact same economic relations over and over and over again. Interesting, Jerry. I want to dig into that more. Linda, I think you're muted. 
Yeah, to, to return to um, Snowpiercer, I was interested in what we were talking about. Where do we locate um, expertise? Where do we locate leadership, right? And I think, I think Snowpiercer um, explores those in a really interesting way and, and, kind, of, and kind of turns these um, conventional tropes upside down, right? Because we have, we have Chris Evans, Captain America, uh, or I think his name is Curtis in it. Um, he's, he's your classic, right, white male leader, and he's going to, he's going to lead the resistance movement and take over the train. But then we don't learn until later that Nam Goon, right, uh, played by a Korean actor, is actually also trying to do something, um, revolutionary, um, but in a completely different way, and he's been paying attention the whole time. Right. And so, and I think the film is, is really good at just kind of, um, at, at kind of revealing that towards the very end, right. That, that there are these two diff wholly different approaches of, um, of how to overturn the system. Right. So yeah. I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. That's great. Yeah. Well, Jerry and, and Mark, I'd lo love to hear your thoughts on the ending. And this, this, this is great. Linda set it up very nicely. Yeah, I'll start with that. One of the things I always think about with that is um, the the beginning with the, the global warming chemical that's being released into the atmosphere to reverse global warming, right? So capital creates an environmental crisis. They invent something that's supposed to fix it. It actually makes it worse. And so the rich people then pile into this miraculous train that can circumvent the world through this engine that miraculously has already been invented for them as a means of escape from the crisis that they created, right? And the original French comic makes it much clearer uh, that, you know, the lunacy of this system, this train that circumvents the world and never stops moving, right, um, is deliberate in some fashion, right? That they, they built this system to protect themselves um, and the rest of us have to kind of suffer in it. Kind of like at the way at the end of 12 Monkeys, the people come back from the future, not to cure the virus, but to take the vaccine so that they can remain in control in the future, right? Um, the rich people who built this system always find a way to remain in control of it. And so the kind of revolutionary gesture is to derail the train, right? Mm -hmm. To actually refuse to be accepted into meritocratic elite and just actually destroy the system entirely, right? Um, and that's a tremendously terrifying thing. It seems to result in the death of like almost everybody in the film, except possibly for two people, right? Um, but it opens up the door to some other kind of world. And when you get out there and you look, you see that the rich people were wrong. The elites were wrong. Things have been alive outside this entire time. There's a polar bear there. It's obviously been eating. It looks healthy, right? Like they could have lived outside the train. Um, the entire thing was in some fundamental way a mistake, right? Caused by uh, the system of, kind of social reproduction that lets the same people always be in control no matter what happens. No matter how bad they screw up, they remain at the head of the train. So Jerry, in the, in the uh, comic, the original French comic, um, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I know there's a lot of differences there yeah. I, and I haven't read it. I, maybe we shouldn't go off on that rail, <laughs> go off the rails right. there. Uh, but, but I mean, is there the mass death or is it in the, in the blowing of the train in the, in the comic or is it more like just blowing the lid off of the illusion of, mm. the, of this like fake train? Like, 
it's more the second. It doesn't have the explosive ending. Um, it seems to, the television show is kind of moving in that direction too, right? That they kind of, it, it becomes instead about the presence of a second train and um, a kind of multiplication in, in that way, okay. right? Um, but it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have the explosive ending that's unique to the film. But it is interesting, right? I mean, I mean, back to Linda's point, right? That that's not only that Curtis has one view of changing things, right? And uh, and Nam has another, right? But it's also that Curtis. It, the suggestion is at least until the revelation of the child labor under that, that makes the engine run. Spoiler alert. Sorry, um, right? It's the suggestion is Curtis you know, like a good maybe social Democrat who thinks he can run the train differently could actually be corrupted to become just another leader, right? I mean, he, he's on the verge of thinking, oh, maybe I will assume my proper place at the front of the train. And then he sees, you know, the there's the sentimental move or whatever of seeing the child labor, you know, just a horror beyond horror, a horror that, that is just integral to the train. And he kind of comes back to his senses, right? And joins Nam. So, but it's so, so it's not only that like there's a different kind of, leadership, but it's also that like the type of leadership that the, the, the Captain America that we've been taught to look to as leader, look out because that may be an eminently co-optable form of leadership, though, though, you know, there's still hope for Curtis as long as he's hanging out with the, you know, maybe the right people or something like that. It's not a total cynical, you know, he's, you know, new boss, the same as the old boss, right? But it, but, uh, um, and yet there isn't that, I mean, and yet the suggestion is, are you going to take over the chain or are you going to blow it up? You know, as I, I keep my fantasy is, why can't the children stop the train, right? What if the children stopped working? But the children are kind of like zombies, right? It's like, it's kind of like they're just like manipulated by the man and don't have any kind of agency. I don't know if you have any thoughts on literally the ending, Jerry. Like, how do you read the ending of, of Snowpiercer? Well, the, the, the main child seems to um, be autistic, right? Or seems to have some kind of... A disability that prevents him from speaking primarily, right? Like there, there's a suggestion in the film that the children who are growing up on the train are cognitively different. The uh, the main uh, female character also has this problem who's who's grown on the train. She, she's, she's slightly detached from what we might kind of understand as kind of neurotypicality today. And so it seems like it's kind of metaphorizing some kind of vision of difference right there that it doesn't quite know what to do with. Um, because we we're focused on we're still focused on the white male hero even though the film is ostensibly in the end about moving past that right we still kind of pass through this this kind of moment um the idea of the children kind of grinding the train to a halt and stopping it is would be a very interesting ending too like a kind of controlled crash landing is you know sometimes kind of uh, speculated and kind of ecologically left material um but as a film right you want the explosion like you want to see the violence, right? And this kind of explosion of this kind of final, um, you know, Chekhov's gun with the explosives, right? We want to see it go off. We need, in some sense, to see the train kind of utterly destroyed. Um, but yeah, you could definitely imagine alternate versions where they, you know, they just slowly power down the train. Um, I think the reason we would have trouble with that probably is because the people in charge would never commit themselves to that course of action, right? Like you said, even Curtis, who is a revolutionary, is essentially tempted to try to keep the system that he knows can't work um, going for as long as it possibly can, right? Um, it really takes these outsider visionaries who are able to see a world outside the train to, to let that happen. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, yeah, we could we could go deeper with this, but we have had some some suggestions too that we should broaden the discussion out. I know we've been going kind of deeper into a couple texts, but there is so much. And I and one reason I really was excited to have Mark is to hear some of 
Mark's suggestions about other works that may be not at the tip of our tongue. Um, Linda, do we have some questions from the queue here? I know you've been keeping an eye on it. I think MJ also has a question, right? Well, could we bring in a new voice maybe? I think okay. we have Ben. Does, does anyone else have any questions? Uh, ben, ben said he was ready. Uh, okay. And we might have Dana ready too. Okay. Ben, go ahead, unmute yourself, Ben. Hi, thank you all. Um, it's a fun conversation. Um, so I have a couple questions. Um, so the first one is gonna be kind of meta, uh, which is to ask about the function of narrativity in all of this, which is to say, um, to some extent, I, I think we're being a little quick with making direct parallels to our lived reality and what the function of these uh, stories are. Um, and in particular, I'm interested in the way that story, stories are both ordering and disordering. Um, so I'm gonna think about um, <clears throat> Mad Max Fury Road, which I just think is probably one of the best pieces of popular um, media that we've seen in the last decade or so. And in particular, the way that it refuses um, narrative, right? It, it instead places everything, all the emphasis on, is on uh, the kinetic, um, the continual movement, and at every moment at which you think there will be narrative explication, um, it kicks back into gear, right? Which is something about cinema, I think, right? Miller is interested in the physicality of movement, uh, right? He goes out of his way to combine digital effects with analog effects, but it's also sort of rift with, uh, ripe with contradiction, right? Um, it's, it both suggests a sort of uh, world destroyed by petrochemicals and yet is also obsessed with automobiles, right? Uh, fetishizes them. Um, and so I guess what I'm interested in is, is the way that, how y'all think of the way that narrative can kind of hold together these contradictory aspects and how that relates to how we, how narratives help us to think about the world. I think you could say something similar about the way that in Snowpiercer, right, there are these um, multiple narratives running at the same time, um, most of which appear entirely linear, just like the train itself, right? It moves forward in this way. And then when Curtis gets to the end, the engineer whose name I escapes me, right, tells him another story, which is meant to convince him that he has to take up that position. And yet all along, there's this disordering figure of the addict, of the addict who actually knows the truth, right, and whose very addiction is a sort of bomb in the heart of it, right, and the fact that he doesn't have a narrative, right, the narrative is reduced to his addiction. Um, so I'm interested in how narrative functions. Um, and the other thing that kind of goes along with this is how you would figure in something like pleasure, Right. What if we think of a film like um, The Matrix, right? The Matrix is clearly a, a, a post-apocalyptic dystopian future, and yet it so clearly taps into certain aspects of um, what we desire about the after, right? Um, that can be both frightening and disturbing, but also really promising to us in, in other ways, right? So those are big questions, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Mark, do you want to go first or? Oh, you give me that one. Wow. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not trained as a narratologist. Um, I, I come at this with sort of a rough and ready cultural studies seat of my pants approach um, as a historian. But I think narrative, film narrative, is fascinating and and I, I sort of go back to Larry May and go almost all films embrace contradiction 
right? And particularly Hollywood texts. We want to, we want to appeal to the entire audience. We, we, give, we give the nods that those, you know, the Democrats will recognize. We give the nods that Sarah Palin and the Republicans will recognize so that you can have um, lefties love the Hunger Games and another fandom, right, that, Edward, that Snow is a metaphor for the Kenyan Muslim dictator Obama, right? I mean, both fandoms exist. Um, and so I think there is, the, the kind of contradiction is just in, seems to me to be inherent in the commercial production of film to some degree uh, in what it's tailed to do. I think in terms of challenging narrative, I think I tend to often think about challenging tropes and conventions. My interest often lies in tearing down my academic great-grandfather, Frederick Jackson Turner, uh, who was the advisor of my advisor's advisor, right? Um, so my academic great-grandfather. Um, and so I, I tend to look at things that contest sort of founding myths of, of American nationalism um, and often sort of Western nationalism. And I think um, there are ways in which a variety of sort of the new weird folks that are coming to really interesting things that break apart things like clean divide between individual and society, right? Um, I think one of my favorite texts lately has been Amatka by Karen Tidbeck, which if it were written in the golden age would be a dystopia but now we read it as a utopia, right? It's the erasure of the individual. It's the insubstantiality of matter. It's the erasure of a division between society and nature, all of which to Campbell or Heinlein would have been horrifying as the sort of incredibly straight, paranoid white men they were. Um, that the sort of flux of narrative that, that later and more current authors are playing with, I think is a really interesting, an interesting move and shows up in some unexpected places. Um, uh, I'm not sure that that really answered the question, but now I'm going to throw it back to Jerry because he can answer the question. Oh, well, that's, I don't know that that's true. I, I always think about this in terms of uh, narrative failure, right? That most of these narratives kind of imagine a story that has a coherent beginning, middle, and end. Um, they're one that you kind of identify with. And so I can watch an apocalyptic narrative and kind of imagine how I too will thrive following the end of the world, right? And all of the things that make me unique and special will, will suddenly come into value. Um, and so some of the gestures that we're kind of zeroing in on are the ones that refuse that, right? So Snowpiercer has this kind of moment of narrative failure at the end where both the hero and the foil, the engineer, both die, right? And the future belongs to two other totally different characters whose subjectivities we don't know very well at all right? Mad Max has structured the whole franchise by this kind of narrative failure in all places, right? Um, it's a different Mad Max seemingly every single time. They don't cohere. The car gets blown up over and over again, and then he somehow always gets another one, right? Um, and then at the end of the film, too, you have this kind of moment of narrative failure where Furiosa and the women ascend, and he just kind of slinks off to some other adventure, right? Like, it doesn't have those kinds of moments of catharsis. And those gestures it seems like to the people who are speaking in this conversation seem like the more radical thing rather than to simply imagine that oh yeah we could just we could blow up this system and then build it again except it would be good this time because i would be an important person in it right and that kind of story seems to be what we're rejecting in favor of um trying to imagine other possibilities and and some of the kind of feminist and post-colonial uh, pieces that Mark began talking about are really about that very thing, like refusing a narrative that's about the replication of the subject hero, right, in favor of kind of other possibilities, whether that be post the post-human or the animal or some combination. 
Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, Ben's given the thumbs up. So, uh, you know, which we can't see on Zoom because, you, you know, only the loud get heard or seen rather, only the speakers get seen. But um, definitely more we could dive into there. I think uh, we have a couple more questions have come up. I know MJ wants to speak again. Speak again. We want to get new voices in, and then we'll come back to MJ. I think, uh, Linda, who do we have next? You are muted, Linda. <laughs> I think we have Bruce Simon. Okay, Bruce. Hey, thanks for the conversation. Really enjoying it. Have a couple free associations, just some suggestions. I think Leslie Marmon Silko's Almanac of the Dead should be uh, definitely read in relation to Snowpiercer. And uh, strangely enough, John Scalzi's Red Shirts, which starts off as a Star Trek parody, but becomes quite deep, um, I think relates to the media hyperreal kind of aspects of our conversation. But my question was, was, was really about audience. Um, and maybe unexpected ways in which the audience is taking up something like Snowpiercer. I haven't seen the movie, um, but my 14-year-old daughter is a big fan of BTS, and they did a whole video that Snowpiercer inspired and a critique of the Korean government for the, the downing of the, well, not the downing, the sinking of the, the ship. Um, and their fandom has created incredibly detailed readings of this video. Um, and as, as you all may know, I mean, it was K-pop uh, stands who were disrupting Trump's uh, rally in Tulsa and who were, um, you know, putting videos on the police, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, um, jamming them, basically. Um, so, you know, unexpected activism coming out of what, in, to, to me, seems like, you know, just classic star system celebrity culture. So, um, you know, the word fandom got mentioned. So I was just wondering if either one of the speakers would like to talk about maybe non-academic or non-activist ways in which audiences or fandoms are taking up these things in, in maybe more progressive ways than we might expect. Yeah, thoughts on fandom, I mean, uh, Mark. Well, fandom deserves its own shelter and solidarity um, because it's a huge, complex phenomenon that that politically shoots all over the map. Though most most fan communities that I'm familiar with tend to be politically progressive, I know that that's not the case for all fandom communities. Um, but but some of the work on fandom is that they do you know that this is one of the places I think when when we want to talk about where does expertise come from, where do, where do smart critiques come from. Um, some fan-produced videos are brilliant critiques of their source material. Um, there was a wonderful video that I used to use to teach on um, that critiqued the sort of anti-Asian racism embedded in Serenity by using clips of Serenity and the 310 to Yuma and these various Westerns and mowed them all together to be this critique of, of racial, civil war, politics, anti-Asian sentiment in, you know, in this popular film that, that did a brilliant job at not just critiquing a certain source text, but showed how this is sort of endemic to a vast array of popular culture. So I think when we want to talk about, you know, where does trust, where does expertise come from, what have we lost is we need to remember, you know, the old, the sort of the old neighborhood reading groups, um, you know, party-based, um, 
movement-based, neighborhood-based. That was the source of, of sort of, ex of organic expertise. Um, and to some degree, fandom serves that at the moment in terms of on, often online communities that raise issues, that, pod, that create debates, that do this through narrative and media. Um, but I would say they're a form of that sort of community, that, that kind of community social reproduction creation um, that generally I'm optimistic about, not always. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree that you guys should do a fandom uh, episode. Uh, fandom, I mean, it's obviously a kind of very dialectical proposition. All of these things are good and bad um, in different ways. They teach us, uh, I think Linda alluded to this earlier, um, all of these stories teach us that what happens when there's a crisis is that the survivors squabble and murder each other, when in fact, empirical studies show the exact opposite happens. People become incredibly generous. They pull together. Uh, they find ways to make sure that everybody can live, right? Like we've been training ourselves through the mass media we consume of the exact opposite thing that happens and kind of driving ourselves mad as a result. Um, but so many of these stories become uh, key moments of uh, solidarity formation for people, right? I mean, there were some really interesting provocative tweets about like, what did you think would happen when you raised a generation on the Hunger Games and Harry Potter? What, what do you think they would become or what sorts of values did you think they would take up um, when it became time for them to confront the adults who were killing them, right? Um, the way the Hunger Games has been taken up by uh, revolutionary groups in Thailand and other places, right? That, that uh, symbology, um, even things that we think are just kind of probably think are kind of mostly direct like avatar right um palestinian activists indigenous activists taking up avatar as a symbol of our own struggle and saying like you know if you can see this in the aliens why can't you see this in us right like they they work in that way to kind of create a, a common language that people can unite around even as they also seem like a distraction and kind of a brain poison right they're doing both things simultaneously and as mark said it's really just like which aspect of it are you focusing on a particular moment yeah, I believe in in, in uh, Palestine and also, as you mentioned, in South Asia, there were there were demonstrations. People actually painted themselves blue, like the Navi, right, to identify themselves with the anti-imperialist kind of anti-corporate, right, uh, land grabbers, right. Um, so, I mean, again, you can make is that typical? Is that representative? I don't know, but I saw that news too, and I and again, there was a lot of people who just wanted to say. Uh, Avatar is just Pocahontas or is just uh, Smurfs and dances with the Smurfs. And, and I feel like there's a danger of that kind of one-sided cynical dismissiveness because it does potentially collapse, right, the space for kind of appropriation, right, and, and broader agency, which doesn't mean there's still not something to be said about, I guess, the problems in a text, but, but there is an openness, right, when these things go out into the world, especially when they go out into a world that is class and nation and you know, divided and, and, and rife with race, racial inequalities and oppression. I mean, who knows, like, what aspect, right? What trope may uh, become a weapon in someone's hands? Not to be just too radically relativist about the whole thing. Uh, we actually have a very sharp empirical question to bring us down to earth in a moment, but Mark wanted to respond. Well, and, and the way you are saying it, once these texts go out, is one of the things that's really inspiring about fandom, right? I mean, that, that there are various fan vidders who basically uh, say, well, this text was problematic and it didn't show what I thought should be shown. So I'm going to resample the footage, re recreate the story that is politically better than the original one, right? 
that a lot of vitters are actually sort of politically engaged in reformulating Hollywood's texts to be politically more interesting and better texts. And that's a really fascinating uh, relationship with uh, the commodity media that I don't think you know, commodity and media theorists had expected in the 1950s, where it was just a one-way funnel. We produce it, you consume it. Now there's a, there's a, back, a back and forth in some texts that's <laughs> fascinating to think about. Yeah, and there's, al there's always object lessons about this, but the, what's going on with J.K. Rowling and the, the trans movement now is, is a great example where so many Harry Potter fan sites are simply saying, well, we, we just won't cover her anymore. She's no longer part of this, right? Like Harry Potter belongs to us. The things she says and things she does don't matter. And we are just going to like proceed with our fandom without her participation going forward, right? Which is fascinating, right? And, um, you know, whether or not, Harry Potter is the thing I would feed somebody to make them radical. I don't think it is. But for some people, it's a meaningful thing that, that prompts something in their spirit that it's interesting. Yeah. Talk about the author is dead here, you know, right? I mean, the idea of people who have an actively antagonistic relationship politically, right, with the author while still claiming the author's world as their own. That's a pretty fascinating dynamic, although I guess there's plenty of authors that have done reactionary things over time, and yet we don't disown them completely in their work, at least. Empirical question from Dana on, on the live Zoom, but wanted it not voiced, mm -hmm. but I'm going to read it for Dana. Dana Moser, just in terms of, a, Dana asked, just in terms of a quantitative analysis, do we know if there were more apocalyptic or dystopian films or novels in the era of, say, Dr. Strangelove versus our common moment, uh, our current moment, I think, maybe, our mm -hmm. common moment. Um, do we have a sense of, I mean, I know that's a big, what counts, I mean, obviously there's yeah. category questions here, but do you have a sense of, of like the, the historical swell, ebb and, ebb and flow of, mm -hmm. of things that are considered, that you consider to be apocalyptic yeah. or dystopian? Are we in a golden age? Are we in a, <laughs> uh, are, I mean, I know it's not right. called the, I don't know, I defer to the experts on this. Uh, you know, there's more of everything now. So more is probably not the right category. But I, I, what I would say is like, look at what constitutes like the top box office in 1990 versus 2020. And over that period, you see the kind of total um, franchisization, like Disneyfication of American popular culture. Like everything is a sequel to a sequel to a sequel. Everything is within this kind of orbit of superhero science fiction kind of spectacle. And in the US, at least all of that is about apocalyptic destruction right so basically like the top 10 movies every year this year will be interesting because it's everything's broken now um box office wise but over that period you see science fiction rise to the the status of like what the western would have been in like the 1950s in hollywood right like every everything that truly makes money in hollywood has some kind of ip connection to SF to CGI and to explosions. Um, and so in that sense, it, it seems to be the, like the hegemonic discourse of our moment to me. Um, and, you know, you said with some surprise before that I was talking to superheroes, but superheroes are always about this very problem. Someone's trying to destroy the world and the superhero has to stop them, right? And most of the time, that person seems to have some kind of like good reason for feeling that way that the film has to, has to refuse, right? So like Killmonger is the great example in our moment from Black Panther, right? That Killmonger is right. He's right about America. He's right about Europe. He's right about the world, but the film still has to put him down, right? Um, so all of these films are kind of working through the same kind of apocalyptic utopian questions that we're talking about just through this kind of superhero discourse.
Yeah, thanks for that. That's very interesting. We could do a we could do a show on superheroes too. I'm sure. Uh, Linda, we have another question. I think from uh, from another uh, member. We have yeah, we have another question from a participant, and the question is, how would the speakers relate? depictions of empires, whether used metaphorically or not, in dystopian narratives, considering shows like Firefly or Avatar or The Last Airbender. Okay. I don't know if you know those texts. I mean, Avatar has been mentioned. Um, the, well, how does empire figure here? I think that question was- Well, I think it's interesting. Um, to think about how some, how dystopias have evolved over the last 30, 30, 40 years. Um, and I think this speaks some to the politics of our time, right? When, when Blade Runner came out, it was the Tyrell Corporation, right? Um, uh, Quiet Earth was a science corporation failure gone wrong. Silent Running was the corporate capitalist exploitation of the world destroying nature. Um, and that at some points in time, it's the corporation that is the agent of destruction in that drove dystopias. And that I think has changed with a, with a more libertarian swing into the Hunger Games and Divergent and The Giver, where um, corporations are not in the picture and it's politics and the state. Right. Um, and uh, and then I think, you know, Empire, you know, Avatar, are we talking Avatar Last Airbender or Avatar the, the movie? I'm not sure. I, I'm very fond of Avatar Airbender. So, so I, yeah. and, and as soon as you said that out loud, Mark, they, the technology started cutting you off. <laughs> Uh, we're really, we're having trouble. That's okay. It was a uh, laugh brought you back though. I don't know. But I think the point you're making while you, in, until we, we have you back, I think we have you back now, but your point about sh the shift from the, the enemy is the corporation, right? For, to just the state or politics, the leader. I think that's very, a very important point. And I think actually it, it speaks to even, even though there's been debates on the left about this too, right? I mean, I mean, the relationship to statism is the, is the goal to take back the state to create a new state or just to get rid of the state entirely. I mean, I think the, the way in which so many different people can find at least the first Hunger Games books compelling from very different political vantage points speaks to that maybe the fuzziness sometimes in, in, in how we, we think about the state or, or the diversity of, of views of the state, even, mm -hmm. even on the left, right? I mean, um, Jerry, did you want to speak to, or Mark, do you want to finish your point? We missed your, uh, the last point you were going to make. No, no. I think I, I think I was uh, I was dissembling into into sort of uh, babble by by that point. So the computer, the internet connection did me a did me a fair service there by cutting me off. Right. If only we could time it that well with our technical uh, technical problems. Okay. Um, so, Mar Mark, I want to make sure. I think we do. We have any other questions in the queue? I'm not seeing one right now. Linda, do you see anything else that we need to ask from others? Can I? Uh, can I yeah, Jerry, jump in, and then I do have another question for yeah. Mark. Um, so I, I think, I think what Mark said is very interesting about uh, corporations and kind of uh, that's the the relationship to the state. Um, 
a lot of U.S. culture has kind of imprinted on the fall of Rome as a model for collapse, right? And so I think we're seeing a lot of those kinds of figurations now where um, there's a sense of kind of living through the end of something and then a need to, re to rebirth it. Um, Avatar The Last Airbender and Zelda Breath of the Wild are both about that, right? A figure is frozen for 100 years, emerges after a collapse, and then has to rebuild. Uh, the new Star Trek series is doing that. They sent, the, they sent a crew a thousand years into the future, and they're going to have to remake the Federation now that it's uh, fall into decadence and collapse, right? So we're kind of thinking through those kinds of, of um, questions of, of almost like Asimov, the foundation, right? Of, of first empire that fails and then a second empire that can kind of arise out of its ashes. And that is also getting a, an Apple TV show that they just released a trailer for, right? Um, so that, that's a kind of big motion around empire at this moment, uh, as well as a, a kind of secondary thing that Dan Golden calls the legacy film, which is when you go back to a film from the 1980s and uh, check in on all the characters and see how horrible their life has been since the fairy tale ending of the first movie. So like the end of Star Wars looked good in 1983. It looked like they had defeated the empire, but then it turns out that no, Luke is a failure, Han and Leia's kid is a school shooter, like the Empire came back five minutes later and it all happened again, right? Um, the same thing happens in Blade Runner, right? Like they run off together, but she dies in childbirth like 15 minutes later, right? And he has to live by himself and be sad uh, for the next 20 years, right? Like this kind of like weird feeling of a, of a failure of the parental generation to create a safe environment for the younger generation. And now the younger generation has to confront them about what a bad job they did. Uh, and so that too is kind of working through a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, I've been watching a lot of Avatar The Last Airbender because my daughter is obsessed with it. Uh, and so uh, we're kind of moving now from Avatar to Korra and the Legend of Korra is about that in this kind of really strange way. It takes place 70 years later. All the characters from the first show are now the elders and the younger generation is confronting them about all the things they screwed up when they saved the world the first time and how they didn't quite save it well enough, right? And so like you, they, they kind of created their own new dystopia that now Korra's generation has to unsettle. And so I think the kind of failed revolutions of the 60s um, and this sense that like there was a chance and we blew it and now we have to do it all again is, is a big part of what American and global popular culture is working through right now. That's really interesting. And I think the general, I mean, I've noticed reflecting back on the conversation is we are over an hour and a half into it now. We'll mm -hmm. move towards uh, wrapping up, I think, with a, maybe a couple of final questions and then mm -hmm. you all can make your kind of closing remarks. Uh, but it's, it's the theme of generational, right, gaps, mm -hmm. right? Or, the, you know, the, 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 the youth and elder relationship that's running through a lot of this, but also, as you're pointing out, the kind of processing of prior generations uh, mm -hmm. attempts to kind of change the world. Uh, or movements, I mean, there certainly were plenty of changes made in the 60s, maybe not as many as some of us would like to see. Okay, I have a question I wanna, and I'm gonna ask one and then Linda's gonna ask one, uh, and then uh, and then we'll maybe move towards wrapping up here, if, unless uh, anyone has a, a pressing question from the, from the field here. And my question is, uh, or my request is that each of you, Mark and Jerry, could maybe help to spotlight uh, a work or a writer, director, um, a work or two, maybe three max, you know, but that you would like to spotlight that you don't think perhaps is on other people's radar or is not on people's radar in the way that it should be. Um, if you could just, you know, not, not just name drop, but maybe just tell us a little bit about a work or two that you'd like to, you know, people that have been watching or listening to maybe check out and, and explain to them, what, you know, what you think is particularly useful or, or interesting about the work uh, that, you, that you spotlight. Mark, you want to go first and then Jerry? Uh, sure. Um, 
I mean, this is one of my favorite things to do. I love to, you know, to suggest books. Um, I think one of the most interesting books I've read lately would be Tade Thompson, um, uh, the Rosewater Trilogy. It's, it's close to the end of the world. It might be end of the world um, postponed, but it, it sets the initial alien appearance is in London where it causes terrible havoc and doesn't work. So the aliens reappear in Nigeria. And of course they do. Nigeria and Africa have already experienced alien invasion. What is the best place to have an alien end of the world novel than Lagos? Um, and it's an exciting piece. It, it again, it challenges to me, Frederick Jackson Turner, right? The frontier is no longer the unsettled West. The frontier is Africa, um, right? The, the boundaries between individuals are erased by the nature of the alien landing. The boundaries between life and death are erased. The boundaries sort of between society and nature come into question and sort of wrapped up in an exciting, you know, an exciting heroic narrative. But again, a hero system that is deeply embedded and only successful inside community. Um, I think he was, One of my move of African science fiction is really exciting these days. A lot of new science fiction is coming out of Africa. Uh, the other person would, of course, be N.K. Jemisin, um, the Broken Earth trilogy, um, for which she won a Hugo for each of the books in the trilogy. First time that that has happened. Um, a terrestrially unstable world. What is a better metaphor for capitalism? right, of people who are necessary but despised, what's a better metaphor for American racism, um, and all of the, you know, founded on genocide that expresses itself in, in violence in the private sphere of the home. I mean, it, it combines sort of colonial critique, racial critique, and, and in many respects sort of feminist social reproduction critique of how we reproduce these violences. So those two if I could get anybody, if I could get folks to read those two, I think those are two really exciting texts at the moment. And so I really are, want to hear what Jerry suggests. But that's just for those who are taking notes, Todd A. Thompson's Rosewater Trilogy and N.K. Jemison's, uh, what's that trilogy called? Or that series? The Broken Earth. Broken Earth. Okay, great. Thank Todd you, Mark. T-A-D-E Thompson. T-A-D-E oh. is the first name. T-A-D, okay, okay. Tad Thompson. Okay, Tad. Okay, I got you. I think. Okay, Jerry. Uh, those are those are great examples. Another person from that kind of um, uh, African cohort, African futures cohort, is Nidia Korfor. Uh, her novel Lagoon, which is also set in Lagos, and is just a kind of great alien invasion story that has really interesting, strange kind of African futurist post-colonial themes. Um, I feel bad not recommending Octavia Butler for this. I don't think anybody predicted 2020 better than Octavia Butler did, um, particularly in the Parables books, which are set around this time. Um, so I definitely would check her out. It's just, uh, I don't always find her the most kind of utopian or generative in terms of uh, solutions. They're very grim books sometimes, uh, but grim can be good. Um, the person who I think works through these issues in the way that I find most um, interesting and generative and kind of totalizing is Kim Stanley Robinson, who I mentioned earlier, um, who's kind of general ethos is to uh, activate a moment of crisis and then imagine what utopian possibilities might 
uh, come out of it. And so sometimes that's Mars, sometimes that's an intergenerational spaceship, sometimes that's New York after climate change. Um, and his current book that's just about to come out, Ministry for the Future, is, is the grimmest and the closest set to our time, right? Like what will it be to live through the sorts of changes that our society will have to have in order to survive uh, the next 50 years of um, unleashed climate change. It's just, it's just a fascinating one. It's probably his most um, dark dystopian sort of novel, but it's, it's the one that's kind of most down to earth. So I recommend uh, most of his recent novels for people who are kind of interesting, interested in this sort of um, question and, you know, want to imagine what, like, what possible good future can emerge from the world we're living in now. Really fascinating. I'm, it's always good to come out of these discussions with something new to, to watch or to read. Um, I'm sure we could, we could dive more. I'm sure you have a bunch of other suggestions. If you'd like to send us you know, the text of them, we can perhaps recommend them to our viewers, put on our Facebook page, a website, et cetera. Linda, uh, I don't know, maybe the last, last question, maybe we'll have one more, but Linda has uh, one of the last questions right here. Okay, so my last question is, is I guess pretty broad. Uh, it's, it's for both of you. I'm just wondering if you know of any texts uh, or, or even one text that you would recommend uh, that people read right now um, because it is really resonant for our, uh, for our moment and also as, uh, as a way of pointing to things that we might do right now to um, to stave off to stave off the apocalypse of this moment. Yeah. Okay. So a, 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 more, a more a more directed ask about sp text specifically resonant with this current moment of crisis. I would have to I would have to sort of echo Jerry's recommendation for uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's 2140. Um, and I think it's a, it's an excellent story. Uh, it's hilarious. The financial district is underwater, you know, literally. Um, and 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 Stan Robinson just has a wonderfully fun time with those metaphors of, you know, liquidity and um, pools of finance. Um, but I think even as it is a good, even as it's an engaging story, it has a collective hero, which I think is important. And it is really didactic about sort of collective political action, rent strikes, um, you know, a, a, an organization that looks a lot like the nonpartisan league, cooperative production that looks a lot like sort of, you know, the Finnish cooperatives of, of you know, of the upper Midwest. Um, it digs back to sort of alternate historical political paradigms that I think have gotten ignored, um, but are, are potentially worth looking at. And he does an entertaining story and it's a love song to New York City. And that's New York 2140, is that right? Yeah, that sounds amazing. Great, yeah, it's on my shelf, actually. It's a big book. I don't know how some of these people, how they churn it out so quickly. I'm, I'm jealous just on that, on that front, how, how they produce these giant books in, in a year. But um, yeah, Jerry, what do you think? 
Yeah, maybe this one is where I'll just talk about Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents a little bit. Um, Octavia Butler wrote them in the 1990s. Um, they're set in uh, the 2020s, and they're about an America that's essentially collapsing uh, on all axes. And the kind of mission of the main character uh, is to kind of develop a philosophical, almost kind of quasi-religious system that could accommodate a, a world that's in such kind of utter collapse and decline. Um, and then in the second novel, more characters come in and kind of dialectically suggest, no, you're wrong, you misunderstand, like there's other things we can do. And it creates this kind of um, very interesting sort of conversation around um, the assumptions of futurity, the assumptions of science fiction, and then what the world might look like. Um, the books, they, they end before they were supposed to because she died too early, but there are kind of tendrils that kind of go out from it that, that um, I think are, are really generative and interesting. Um, and like I said, they are grim, they're grim books, um, but I think they have interesting things to say about the, the America that we are currently living in and might help some people, and not anybody listening to this, of course, who um, need help dis, dis identifying with some of our failed institutions. Um, the book will help you do that for sure. To help people disidentify, right? So the, right. Idea, the idea that some of these narratives and these stories can help to, to, to break our allegiances or, you know, or, or the inherited hegemony that, that helps to, to shore up the, the ruling order. Right. right. The, the, yeah. The, the sort of cruel optimism that like, you know, if only Joe Biden can win the election, then um, all of these problems will be over. Right. I mean, I think I think what everybody is seeing now is that um, we have to think bigger than the kind of two year electoral cycle that we've been living in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's I mean, as much as uh, the, these uh, stories may sometimes I mean, Kim Stanley Robinson seems like someone who really does want to put forth positive alternatives and like right ways things could be done in some in some places, as I understand it, Mark. But it sounds like also the, the work that these dystopian narratives can do is, is negative, right? By shining a light, the limits of the present and the need and the basis for something new. Um, speaking of the election, we actually will have a program on the election, uh, the left and the election, socialists and the vote next week, uh, anchored by Victor Wallace, author of the book, Dem Democracy Denied, as well as Red Green Revolution. Um, he'll be the primary guest and we'll have him in conversation with Medea Benjamin next week of, of, of Code Pink. Uh, certainly even those of us who don't think Joe Biden is by any means going to rid the world of the problems we need to may not feel that we can ignore this election nonetheless. So we welcome you all back for that discussion next week, uh, which will also be 7 p.m. next week on Shelter and Solidarity as we're approaching, coming up on our 20th episode. I also want, I can't resist plugging two weeks from now on August 6th, we will have the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winning author, Greg Grandin, author of The End of the Myth, uh, From the Frontier to the Border Wall in the Mind of America, an outstanding book, which shows you that dystopia and apocalypse doesn't have to be fiction uh, in American history. It's part of our history too, in so many ways. Uh, I want to thank Linda for being co-host of this episode. I want to thank Jerry and Mark uh, for being great guests. Tim Sheard and Seren uh, Mudliar and Kira Mudliar for helping to produce the episode. And special thanks to our sponsors, the journal Socialism and Democracy, um, the, the organizing center Encuentro Cinco, laborpress.org, and last but not least, Hardball Press, a source, a producer of working class stories, which I resonate in this moment. 
sometimes truth, as we know these days, truth can be stranger, uh, more challenging uh, than fiction. So uh, thank you all for being here and hope to see you next week. If you want to stick around for the debrief, we'll hang out in a moment. <laughs>